Well, good morning, Genesis House. We should just start, and the other adults will join us shortly. So why don't we stand as our custom and read John chapter 19, verse 17. John 19, 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on the other side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What have I written? I have what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he'd loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we have, as a church, uh, encountered the gospel many times in various ways and various forms. And I just pray that uh, today would be a fresh new look at it. Uh, maybe just to confirm some truths we already know, but also to learn new things that we may not have understood about the cross before. So it doesn't matter where we're at in our faith today, I know that you have something to say to us. May you guide us into truth, and especially me as I deliver your word to your people. And uh, we're looking forward to our time together, and may your Holy Spirit uh, fill this place in my mind as we uh, speak your gospel today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from the song this morning and from today's reading, we're going to be spending our time as a church looking at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, for many of you in here today, you've already grown to understand the significance of the cross and what Jesus' death has meant for you in your life. If you've been a Christian a long time, you've probably heard the gospel message a number of times, probably even a few hundred, depending how long you've been a Christian, and you've heard this uh, uh, preached to you over the course of a number of years. At the same time, you might be new to the gospel, and so uh, you may not have understood the purpose of Jesus' death and the reason for the cross. Regardless of where you're at, though, today, my prayer for you is that regardless of where you're at and your understanding, you'll come to understand Christ in a whole different way, and that you will learn to love him in a way that you never have before. Now, we're going to accomplish this by looking at three aspects that John 
highlights in his gospel message. I'm not going to go every verse today. I'm going to pick out three aspects of the cross that I think are significant for us to understand as a church. And I want to just give them up to you up front so that you have it already in your mind what we're looking at. First of all, I want to talk about the significance of the place of the execution. Significance of the place of execution. Secondly, the significance of the written inscription above Jesus' head on the cross. And the third thing is the significance of what the cross accomplished for humanity. So those are the three things we'll be talking about today. Let's deal first of all with the significance of the place of execution. Look at verse 17. It says, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. What we notice here in verse 17, that John records that Jesus, after leaving the praetorium where he was tried by Pilate and flogged by Pilate, he carried his own cross to this place called Golgotha. Now, according to the commentaries I was reading, uh, it was standard Roman procedure that all convicted criminals would carry their own cross to the place of execution. But don't think of it being the whole entire structure. They would only carry the cross piece that would go over the shoulders. The, the long pole that was, you'd be attached, that piece would be attached to was already the place of execution. It had been too heavy for any human being to probably carry on their own at that point. So he, just, he would have carried this cross beam. But because these crucifixions were public events, this was a further way for the Romans to humiliate you if you were a criminal. Because as a public event, people would line the streets. And so if you went from the Roman governing authorities' chambers to the place of execution, then you'd have to walk through crowds. And it was a further way of, of humiliating you as they watched you go towards your execution. But it's also a chance for Rome to remind the civilians of the city in, in Jerusalem that crime doesn't pay. <laughs> If you want to mess around with Roman law and flex your muscle against us, this is what it's going to cost you if we catch you. So it served two purposes, I believe, and the reason why the Romans did this. Now John tells us the name of the place was called Golgotha, and he doesn't leave anything misunderstood. He says the name of this in Hebrew was called the skull. Now, we often call it Calvary. You've heard people, even churches are named Calvary Chapel and things like that. Calvary is simply the Latin name for Golgotha. So it's the same thing, same place, the place where Jesus was crucified in two different languages. Now, why this name of the skull for this Golgotha place is up for debate. But thankfully, we have Evie in our church, and she answered that for us at uh, service last week at the Christmas Eve. But... Some people thought that the, the, um, the, the skull, the name of the skull was because they found many skulls there over the years. Well, from Jewish way of thinking, that would be impossible because to have skulls exposed on top of the ground would be to be ceremonially unclean. So there's no way the Jews would, would allow this to occur. Some have suggested that Adam, like the first human being ever lived, Adam's skull was actually found there. Now, these are highly unlikely and there's no pr proof of evidence, but Evie did point out that the, the shape of the hill actually is shaped like a skull. And when you look on, I went just for curiosity's sake and looked on Google Images and I found they su suggest two sites that could be the place of crucifixion and both of them have skull-like properties. So most likely the hill just resembled a skull. But here's a key observation that I don't want you to miss as a church. And it's just so sneaky, you would just sneak right by it unless we pointed this out. But it's in verse 20. It says, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, but it says, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was near the city. 
Now, the fact that John records that Jesus was crucified near the city or in other places outside the city, uh, that's important theologically for us as a church to understand. You see, in the Old Testament, there were different types of offerings. Different types of offerings. There were burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, uh, guilt offerings, and there were sin offerings. Now, these were done throughout the year, but there was one extremely important uh, offering within the nation that occurred once per year, and that was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, and this was a sin offering. There was specifically a sin offering on the Day of Atonement for the whole nation of Israel. And what would happen is the high priest would be allowed to enter behind the curtain where the Holy of Holy was. So in the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was behind, it was behind the curtain. And then the temple, it was in behind this curtain. And the high priest would bring blood of a bull or goat into the, uh, into the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the blood on the altar. Now what's different about this is that you were never allowed behind the altar any other time of the year except this one time a year. You were not allowed behind that curtain, only once per year by the high priest. And secondly, in this sin offering, unlike other sin offerings in which you could eat the flesh of the animal after killing it, you were not allowed to eat the flesh or do anything with the hide. It was instructed to the Israelites to take the sin offering outside of the camp of Israel, outside of their borders, and, and burn it there. So you, as a priest, you'd, you'd kill the animal in the temple, put the blood on the altars behind the curtain once per year, take the rest of the animal and burn it outside the camp of Israel. That's really significantly important for us because the author of Hebrews picks up on this about what Jesus did and where he was crucified. Look at here. Oh, actually, this is Leviticus explaining, uh, I'll read this first, actually. Leviticus 16, 7-27 says that the, the bull and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn its hides, their flesh and their refuge in the fire. So there you go. There's the proof of the Old Testament reference of how they were to handle this on Day of Atonement. But watch this in Hebrews 13:11. It says, For the bodies of those animals who, whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. You see the comparison? You see, because the wages of sin um, were death, the only acceptable sacrifice to God was blood. So the animals would be brought in as a picture of a symbolic forgiveness of sin for the Israelites. But then you weren't, sin was not allowed in the presence of God. So they had to remove the sin from the Holy of Holies and get it outside because sin's never allowed to be in the presence of a holy God. Likewise, Jesus was burned out, crucified outside the temple, outside the gate of the city, because he bore our sins on the cross. And so God couldn't be in his presence um, in, the, in, this, in this way, because he, had to take, uh, he couldn't be in front of a holy God while, while participating in this sacrifice for our sins. And it's no wonder, now we understand this, why Jesus actually cried out in the other Gospels, Why have you forsaken me? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why am I abandoned here? Why am I all alone? And it's because he was bearing the penalty for sin. So this significant, this is hugely significant of where he was executed. And it was, uh, it was totally designed by God to be this way. Now, what's interesting about this is that John doesn't really talk about any of the details of the crucifixion. He mentions it kind of matter-of-factly. I mean, look at verse 18. He says, there they crucified him. And with him, two other men on either side, and Jesus in between. 
Well, if you're just a, new to the gospel and new to understanding crucifixion, this doesn't seem like much, and you just think, oh, it sucks for you and too bad for you and move on. Um, but I suggest that John doesn't elaborate this, and for one probable reason, is that the focus of his gospel is not on the suffering Messiah. His focus is not on the suffering Jesus, but on the deity of Christ. So he wants to prove that Jesus was God in the flesh. So he's not going to spend a lot of time on the suffering. But we need to understand what crucifixion was like. We have to understand this. And we know it was a horrific form of torture. Horrific form of torture. So much so that according to a guy by the name of John Kostenberger, no Roman citizen was allowed to be executed by that form of punishment. So if you're a Roman citizen and you committed a crime, you weren't even allowed to be crucified unless the emperor deemed that you needed to be. So this was a, this was a form of execution only uh, that was allowed for people who were uh, non-Roman. So that's how much the Romans understood how graphic this was. They'd rather kill you another way or punish another way. And part being a perk of being Roman was you'd be free from this. So again, this was no Roman citizen was allowed to be executed without the emperor's approval. That's how brutal it was. Secondly, eventually Rome deemed it too inhumane and removed it from their statutory um, uh, rights, or whatever they call it, to, to yeah, they basically deemed it into, too inhumane and removed it from their constitution. And they stopped doing executions in crucifixion ways. But let me explain to you why it was so brutal. You see, the nails, you know, were driven through the hands and the feet. And most likely, the, the nails were actually put through the wrists. And the reason is that you're all on your radius and you're, these bones have a space between there. So a, ra a, a nail could easily go through your wrists. So you'd be, just without any anesthesia <laughs> or any anything, you would be just put on a piece of wood that'd be rough, it wouldn't be sanded down, you know, it would be a rough splintered piece of wood, and you would have your hands stretched out and your feet done, and they'd drive a huge spike through your, your feet and through the wrists of, your, of your, your hands to nail you to this piece of wood. Now, the reason why this was significant was these would be the anchor points, the anchor points for the human body in which the real torture would come. Because what would happen is it'd be a game of survival for every breath you took. And if you, as you sit there, when you exhale, you kind of slump in your chest. Like when you breathe out, your chest will like, sort of encave in, uh, in, in itself. And when you inhale, your chest will expand. Okay, so you can do that easily sitting and you can do it easily standing because you have just your, your normal muscles and bones supporting your body. But if you were hanging from this drywall, that's what it's like. Imagine someone coming in here, just ripping you off your seat and nailing you to the studs of this drywall and you're 200 pounds or 150 pounds or 250, whatever you weigh, your whole body is anchored off of these, these points in your feet and then your hands. So as you slump down to try to take a breath, all the weight of your hands and feet go on those nails. And as you try to inhale, you have to arch, your, arch up to try to catch a breath. And so the nails become your, fo your focal point in, your, in which you try to gain breath and lose breath, gain less and lose breath. So we think of crucifixion, you might think in your head, well, man, that must have been really painful to get the nails through their hands, and that must have been the worst of the crucifixion. You're wrong. That was the, that was the easy part of crucifixion. See, the people who died this way didn't last minutes. You could go on and on for hours and hours and hours in this kind of way, every breath fighting for, and some would even last days. Some could last two, three days in the cross in this form. So you wouldn't die from the pain in your hands and your feet so much as the absolute exhaustion and dehydration and shock from trying to fight for every breath. 
So as a person was no longer able to raise themselves into a position to take breath, they would ultimately die of suffocation and asphyxiation. You think about that now. I, was, I don't know where I was now. I think I might have been in one of your guys' houses, like uh, in the basement somewhere, because I remember it was just recently, but I was... I, I hate my mind does this to myself, but it, I have an active mind. And uh, I was walking down one of your basements, and I saw this, like, drywall. And I thought about that. I thought, but what if someone just walked in here and just grabbed me because they hated me for... And I, even though I was innocent, and just took nails and, like, like nailed me to the studs of the wall. I think about that. You just hang from here with nothing to support you except like these, like these three or four nails. Like it's just unbelievable. And, you, and we come back two days later and you still might be there fighting for every breath. We're going to understand why Jesus did this uh, in a minute. So anyway, that's, that's crucifixion for you. Let's talk about now the significance of the inscription read, about, read above Jesus' head. Look at verse 19. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription that put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where they were crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. It was customary in those days that a criminal who had been led away to be crucified was preceded by a man who would be carrying a placard or a big sign. And on that sign would be the written crime for which the person condemned was going to die. So if you were a murderer, it would say this person is dying for murder. If you were a thief, this person is being dying for thief. So, so this would be then this carried by the person, the head of the person carrying the cross. They'd get to the execution site, and then that would be nailed above the cross. So again, people witnessing would know what kind of crimes didn't pay in Rome. But since Pilate believed Jesus was innocent, which we've already discovered in our previous sermons, he had nothing for him to write regarding any crime he committed. So I think what he did here, this is my strong suggestion, I think what he did here was he used this opportunity to write this about Jesus, to get back at the Jews for blackmailing him into killing Jesus. I think they wanted to do this. Remember, they said, you're no friend of Caesar's unless you kill him. And Pilate was scared of Caesar, who was Tiberius at the time, because Pilate didn't have a good reputation with Tiberius by this point. And also, if he, didn't, if he failed to kill someone who claimed to be the king, a king under another king, and who was a potential insurrectionist, Pilate was afraid that Tiberius would come down hard on him. And so when the Jews blackmailed to threaten to tell Caesar on him, like be a big tattletale, he thought, okay, I've got to get rid of this Jesus. But what's interesting about what he wrote is first is, is uh, what he wrote in there was first that he called him Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. So why would this be a dig against the Jews? Well, you remember when Philip came to Nathaniel in John 145 and told him that he had found the Messiah who was Jesus from Nazareth? What was Nathaniel's response? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> Nazareth apparently was a village in Judea that had a bad reputation. It was kind of like a hole in the wall. Right? And so it didn't have a good reputation amongst the Judeans. And so Nazareth was just sort of like a little junky town where nobody there was worth anything. And Nathaniel made that pretty clear. How can Jesus come from Nazareth? That's just a little grimy town. So knowing this, Pilate likely knew of Nazareth's reputation amongst the Jews as being a sort of hole-in-the-wall kind of place. And so intentionally wrote on here, Jesus, this is the kind of king the Jews have. He's from Nazareth. Can you believe this? 
right? A way of digging back at them and insulting them. To make matters worse for the Jews, he also wrote that they believed that Jesus was their king. Again, that's a way of mocking him. I mean, Pilate knew the Jews didn't believe that he was their king. That's why they brought him to, to Pilate in the first place. He claimed to be king, and they said, you're not our king, and so they wanted him to be killed because he claimed to be the Israel's king. <laughs> so Pilate darn well knew that they didn't believe this, and so he wanted to really rub, this, rub their noses in it by writing this on the placard. And to, to add further insult to injury, verse 20 tells us that Pilate had Jesus' inscription written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now these are the three most commonly spoken languages at the time and would have covered the majority of the Mediterranean-speaking world. And again, I think Pilate did this intentionally because Jerusalem was a popular city and was frequently visited. So he didn't want to miss any opportunity to let any visitors coming into the city know who Jesus claimed to be. And again, if these visitors come in and see this weak, pathetic, bloody, uh, um, sort of weak man nailed to a cross, and then he makes the declaration that this is the Jewish king, all the people coming in go, oh man, look at this, look at these Jews, look at their king, and so on and so forth. That's another way of instigating and, and, and uh, making them feel angry about the whole situation. So Pilate knew exactly how to tick off the Jews. And we know it worked. Look at verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Don't write that on there. We don't want that on there. He's not our king. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. I ain't changing it, boys. That's the way it's going down. But here's the irony about the significance of the inscription. What he meant in sarcasm and humiliation actually spoke of the complete truth concerning Jesus' identity. I like what Joe Dongel said about it. I'll quote him. He says, All of the mockery, though designed to humiliate Jesus and ridicule his claim to kingship, served instead as the grand coronation ceremony by which Jesus publicly received his royal throne. See, that's why you read commentaries, because they they're much more eloquent than uh, your pastor. And again, though, look what the New Testament states concerning the nature of Jesus' kingship. In Philippians 2, 9 and 10, he makes this declaration. Therefore God exalted him, him being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The question for you and I is this. If we are going to, according to God, bow to the name of Jesus, both in heaven and earth, the question is, when are we going to do this? Are we going to do it now, in this lifetime, and be promised eternal life? Because if we don't do it now, in this life, you'll be doing it when you face him in the judgment after we die. And by then, it's too late. Every human being is going to bow to the name of God, whether they want to or not. The question is, when are we going to do that? <coughs> Finally, I want to talk about the significance of what the cross accomplished. We'll read verse 28 to 30. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
The Greek word for it is finished is tetelestai. Tetelestai. Uh, don't be impressed. It's not a, you can look this up on Google yourself. <laughs> so it's not that hard to find this out. But the word is tetelestai, and it means to bring to a close, to complete, or to fulfill. And in religious context, it's to bring to completion the will of another. Well, we know that Jesus came to earth because it was God's plan for him to do so, to be crucified. So when he came to be crucified and he was finally went through with it, he had the right to yell out, it is finished. Now for us as Christians, we understand what the, that crucifixion meant. It meant that through his death and resurrection, we'd be given the right to eternal life and be forgiven of sin. Now, while this is true, while this is true, I do want to point out in further detail what the cross actually accomplished and what Jesus really meant by it is finished. And I'm going to give you three things that I think he finished by dying on the cross. And the first one is this. That sin was atoned for. He, sin was atoned for. Another word for atoning is covering. Covering. Okay, so the, the cross accomplished the covering for sin. Secondly, he accomplished the defeat of Satan and as a result conquered death. And thirdly, he satisfied God's wrath or need for judgment. All right, so when he said it is finished, what he meant was he covered sin of humanity. He defeated Satan on the cross and the power of death. And he satisfied God's need for wrath in our lives and the need for judgment. So let's walk through these three, three things in more detail. Let's look at the first one. The, the finishing of the work of the cross atoned for our sin. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 11. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time the same animal sacrifices which can never take away sin. But Jesus, having offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. See, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were never meant to take away sin. When you participated in them, they were a reminder that it took the blood and death of an animal to cover your sin, to atone for sin. And because there was a Savior to come that God had promised, He promised Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 in the curse. He promised Jesus would come all the way back after Adam and Eve sinned. And so the, the, the Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah to come to, to, be, to redeem people and to cover their sin. Now they didn't know how he was going to do that exactly, but they believed that was going to happen. And here, um, so when they participated in animal sacrifice, they believed in the one to come. And so it was never meant to, that the animals would actually take away your sin, but it was symbolic that they did. It served as a reminder that you needed to be forgiven. Now, the, thing, the reason why animals couldn't take away our sin is that if you have human sin, it takes a human to cover your sin. <laughs> An animal can't take care of your sin. They don't have a free will. They, just, they act on instinct. So it needed to be a human to cover human sin. And so Jesus had to come to pay for our sins because it took a human to pay for human sin. Now, sin is not a popular idea in our culture, right? In our culture, everyone's a good person. That's the motto on the bumper stickers in our vehicles. Everyone's a good person. But if we're honest, if we're truly honest, we actually know that's not true. If we're truly honest with ourselves. And here's why. God said, Jesus actually said this in the New Testament. He says, 
The way to be sinless in my eyes is to love God with your whole heart and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way to be sinless. Let's pretend now that that first commandment doesn't even exist. Let's just deal with the second one, to love your neighbor as yourselves. I don't know a single person in this world who's never gossiped about somebody else. Including us, including me. I don't know a single person who's never told a lie to, to make themselves look good. I don't know a single person who's not ignored somebody they know is in need, but just were too busy to take care of them. I don't know a person in the world who's, who hasn't cheated in some kind of way or stolen something. <laughs> I mean, all of us, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have not have at some point broken God's commandments in the, in the area of loving someone else as we love ourselves. And so Jesus, knowing this, knowing this, had to come and die for those sins. He had to. He had to. And you know what? You and I desire justice in those areas. Imagine this. You, uh, I'll be, actually, it's great because Jim's here. Because Jim's, uh, you may not know this, but Jim's is in the law profession, right? Imagine you go before Jim and he's your judge. <laughs> okay? And you have a speeding ticket. You're going 55 in a 30 zone. And you stand before him and he says, well, here's the fine. It's going to be $300 and you're going to lose your license. And you're, why don't you do this in that moment? You say, yeah, but uh, you didn't see what I did this morning. I opened a door for someone, an old lady coming into the court this morning. So I'm a good person. And actually, I actually, last night, I had someone over for dinner, my neighbor, who I knew was going through a hard time. And so I thought I should take care of them. So I'd just like you to let me off on this charge because I'm a good person. What's a judge going to do to you? He's going to laugh you out of court. He says, I don't care about those things. Good for you, but I have, you had a debt to pay. You still owe that me money for that speeding ticket. That's the way it is with God, with love. You might stand before him and go, but I did this, and I did this, and I did this. He goes, I know you did these things. But I don't care about those things. I care about this, and this, and this, which I know about. And that's why we need Jesus Christ because it doesn't matter if you sin once or sin a million times. Debt needs to be paid. And even in our legal system today, apart from God, we believe that to be true. And you believe that to be true. Again, if your husband or wife, the those of you who are married, if you have three months of perfect treatment, and they love you and respect you unconditionally in every instance, and just for one day they have a bad day, do you let that go? Probably not. You probably want justice that very day for what was said. There's no, there's, you can't bank love and respect. For, it doesn't work that way in your marriage. You want justice now. That's exactly, so if we want that, why would you, and we're created in the image of God, why would he think any differently? So this, is, this might even help you when you speak to people about this, I'm a good person stuff. These are the categories in which you can walk things through as you think about how God views sin. So we needed Jesus Christ to atone to cover sin. And he could do it because he was sinless. So because he was sinless, God would accept him as a sacrifice for our sins. Which leads to the second point. The crucifixion means this, that Satan was defeated and so was death. Look at 1 John 3, 8. Uh, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come to earth? To destroy the works of the devil. Not just cover sin, but destroy them. Look at uh, Hebrews 2.14. Because, because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son, which is Jesus, became flesh and blood. 
For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. See, we've just talked about everyone of us have sin, right? Well, the Bible teaches this, for the wages of sin is death. If you're a sinner, you get paid. The way you get paid is by receiving death. So when you go to work, and you work for wages, you have a job description. And if you meet the job description, you get your money. God says this, you have a job description, you're all sinners. And so the wages, the payment for that is death. <laughs> you ever wonder why we die? Ever think about that? Like, why does every human being die? Because of sin. If there was no sin in the world, you'd all live eternally in this world right now. God created Adam and Eve to live eternally. But Satan introduced sin to them. And they bought the bait that he, they, 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 you know, they grabbed onto the fish that he was presenting. They bit onto it. And they entered into separation from God. I mean... Remember in the garden, God said, if you disobey my command, you will die. But if you don't, you will live forever. Satan comes in and says, you will never die. You'll never die if you sin against God. And so he, he baits them in, and they do. And so now death enters into the human race. Remember Jesus' description of Satan in, in John? Earlier in our, in our studies, a couple years ago, he said, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He's a murderer from the beginning. Now what's interesting, he's never killed anybody physically. He never killed anybody. But he spiritually did by sowing deception into their lives. And because of the deception, they bought it. And as a result of disobeying, they ended up with sin, which meant they ended up with death. So when Jesus came, he came to defeat the power of Satan. Because if he can defeat sin on the cross and defeat and resurrect from the grave, that means he conquers death. So that you and I, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we conquer the devil that's gripped on our life, and we conquer the death penalty that we're to deserve. Not physically, but we do, but we eternally. We do receive a, a new body in heaven, and we will have eternal life with Jesus Christ. The third thing the crucifixion accomplished, and what Jesus meant by it is finished, is that God's wrath was satisfied and there was no need for judgment to be taken on our lives. Look at Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made fully human in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that word propitiation has been lost in the Christian culture, but the word propitiation means basically to satisfy God's wrath. So if you're a propitiation for sin, you've satisfied God's wrath or satisfied God's need for judgment. Now because the first two points, because we all have sin in these covered, and because we all have the death penalty over our lives apart from Christ, therefore we are going to be judged by God because of those things, right? So we need some way for God's judgment to be lifted off of our back. Lifted off of our back. And so we sent Jesus Christ to die as a substitute for our sins. So that if we place our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. So again, we need, when Jesus meant it was finished, I believe he was saying these three things. I have covered sin, I've atoned for all humanity's sin. I've defeated Satan and the power of death he's brought into this world. And I've satisfied God's need for judgment because it was taken out on me instead of humanity. It all fell on me so that humanity could be in relationship with God because there is no one good, 
No one's done enough to earn God's favor. You need to grab on the coattails of Jesus Christ to enter into glory and be with God. Now, I've given a, that's a verbal illustration, but let me give you a visual one now, okay? Because maybe my words got lost in translation. This is life without the cross. God's on the other side of that brick wall. Because of sin, because of our sin, there's separation between us and God. Before sin, that brick wall was gone. Adam and Eve were in harmony and communion with God. After sin entered the world, God put a chasm between humanity and man and removed himself. Like, removed himself in distance. That's the brick wall. So here we are, standing there, going, how do I connect myself to God? In religion, they teach, here's how you get right with God. You just perform the rituals of our church. You just perform the rituals. You get baptized, that wall's gone. You participate in communion, that wall's gone. You read your Bible, that wall's gone. You uh, wear special clothing and go to a special temple, that, that wall's gone. You face east and pray five times a day, that wall's gone. That's all a bunch of lies. It's a bunch of lies. Because if all that was true, there's no need for the cross. If you can get to interrelation with God and break that wall down to rituals and, and certain behaviors, there's no need for Jesus to die. Because you can do that through the religion of the church. And so, but here's what God teaches. Because of this wall, you've got unpaid sin. That wall is up because of sin. <laughs> okay? So you've got sin that's unpaid that's attached to your back. Satan stands victorious in your life, and so therefore you're going to die, both physically and eternally in, 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 in the afterlife. And there'll be judgment on your life. And my life, too. But with the cross, here's what happens. The wall is completely taken down. The wall between you and God in terms of reconciliation and restoration is taken down. That means it's your sins are covered on Jesus' back. Satan is defeated because he, he died on the cross and was resurrected, and so the power of death has no hold in your life. And God's wrath has been satisfied and there's no need for judgment. It's been lifted off of your back and all put on Jesus Christ. And that's a picture of the gospel message. And I think it's so fitting that you know, I was thinking as we were coming in here, I was kind of like disappointed, not disappointed, but I was kind of like wondering if I'd, if I'd done the church a disservice by over the month of Christmas really doing Easter sermons. <laughs> Have you noticed that? We've been talking about the crucifixion all through the month of December, and our first service is about this. I was like, Dexter, you got the whole thing backwards. You better go back to school and like learn what holiday, or not holiday, but what ceremony and what day, right? We're celebrating, the, at the birth of Jesus' time, we're celebrating the crucifixion. But I'm so glad we're upside down, outside the box. I'm so glad. It seems fitting that the first day in a new location, with a new, with a new change and a new vision for our church in terms of how we're moving forward, that we get back to the very basics of the whole Christian message and the gospel and why we're here in the first place. I am so grateful that we're upside down and backwards and that we are doing the crucifixion at Christmas time because of the vision we're going into. We're starting a new year. We need a new focus. And we have to base it. Everything we think and believe and live, the way we live, is based on this truth. And so I'm glad we're starting off the new year with this message. The very basics of the Christian foundation. Let me give you three lessons. And they're very simplistic in the way I worded them, but they're very complex, not com they're very important theologically, as you may know. So I'm repeating myself again from the, from, the, from the beginning of the service, but here we go. Lesson one. 
Jesus' inscription, although designed to humiliate him and the Jews, accurately proclaimed the truth concerning his identity. Right? Even though this was a, this was a placard designed to, to humiliate him, and the Pilate didn't believe he was a king, the Jews didn't believe a king, in God's providence and sovereignty, he was declared to be king. And I love that it was written in three languages, because what was, he, what was Pilate trying to do? He was declaring to the whole world what? This guy is a joke king. But what did God actually have? By writing it in three languages, what did he declare? He said this, I want to let the whole world know this guy actually is the king. If he'd just written in one language, it would have restricted how many people would have, would have known about Jesus' identity. And it's true, because Jesus is the king for the whole world to this day. And I can't wait to meet God, and I'm going to ask him this question. How in the world did you pull that off? How did you, how did you like, orchestrate all this, that this was written on his plaque? Like, how, like this is just mind-boggling how you were able to get this to be fulfilled. Because <laughs> there's so many players and so many ways this has to go for this to be proclaimed. Second lesson. As a substitute for our sin, Jesus had to be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. See, sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Can't be. That, the, it just can't be. So therefore, it can, the, the, the animal or the person, the only way they can be in the presence of a holy God is if God makes them holy and declares them holy. So, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the animal being sacrificed to atone for sins of the whole nation by the high priest had to be taken away from the temple, away from the tabernacle, and burned outside the city. Likewise, Jesus had to be crucified as a sin for us outside the city because he could not be in the presence of uh, the temple or, or anything holy. And it's a beautiful picture. And again, it's a Christ is the antitype of the Old Testament sacrifices. Simple and understanding, theologically profound. Third, reconciliation with God is an impossibility without the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, in our civil law, if you stand before a judge and claim your morality to get off a crime, the judge will laugh you out of court. He might show mercy on you and re reduce your sentence, but there's still a sentence. But you can't, you can't, you can't claim the grounds for relief of punishment based on other moral actions. Likewise, God holds us accountable. And again, as a loving parent, you do the same thing. Those of you who have children, you, let's say you have five, six, seven great days with your kids, and they have a few sinful moments. As a loving parent, you don't let it, on, you don't let it go by. You step in and say, that's not right, and you lead out the appropriate punishments. And actually, Jesus says this in Proverbs. He says, if you don't discipline your kids when they act out, you actually hate your kids. It says that in Proverbs. If you don't discipline your kids, you hate them. You can see why now. Because you have to produce character. You have to step in as a loving parent and follow through. And so the same thing for God. He has to, he has to carry out His justice. So we can't be reconciled to God on our own moral codes. We have to have Jesus' blood cover us as human beings. I'm going to leave you with one illustration before we close today. And again, if nothing I've said has made sense today, may this make sense to you now. I'm going to ask you a question. Who do you love? Don't yell this out loud. And don't say Jesus, because that's the Sunday school answer. But who do you love most in this world? <laughs> humanly speaking, Christ should be first. But who do, you love, who do you love most in this world, humanly speaking? 
hold on to that thought. Who do you dislike the most? Who really irks you, challenges you, and you could take them or leave them and probably wish, in fact, if they never spoke to you or ever saw them again, you'd be grateful to kind of let God remove them from your lives. <laughs> okay, so who do you love the most and who challenges you the most? Who do you despise the most? I, again, as Christians, we're to love our enemies, but besides the point, work with me on the analogy. Okay, you got those names in your head? All right, so what if God came to you and said this? Uh, I know you're struggling with so-and-so, that person you hate. I know you can't stand them. And you could really have nothing to do with them. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I really love them. I really love them. And I actually want to be in relationship with them. But I can't do it alone. can't do it alone. I actually need your help. Okay? So Sheldon, I need your help to deal with this person you hate. Abilene, I need your help to deal with this person you hate. Rochelle, I need this help, your help to deal with this person I hate. And go and the rest of you, right? And so what do you say? Because you're an obedient servant to God, of course, I'm in. I'm in. I want to do this. I want to be part of the big kingdom, the big picture. And God says, I'm glad you said that. So here's what we're going to have to do to cover your sin, cover their sin. You know that person that you love the most? Your daughter, your son, your husband, your wife, your parents? Uh, I'm going to require their lives to cover their sin. So we're going to go down to the basement right now. And uh, there's a, I've removed the drywall, and there's, I found the studs. We're going to take your, the one that you love right now, and without any warning, even though they're innocent, and that person that you hate, by the way, hates your wife or your kid as well, and couldn't care less about them. We're going to basically take nails, and we're going to hang them to the wall, and we're going to basically wait for two days until they die. How glad would you be that you agreed to God's plan? You see, that's exactly what Christ did for you and I. We are defined in the scriptures as enemies of the cross and ungodly. And if you're honest with yourself, you recognize yourself that way. But Christ died for you. He sent his only son to die in your place, the one he loved the most. Jesus was innocent and he paid for yours and my penalty. And you and I couldn't even fathom doing that with our loved ones towards someone we can't even stand. It'd be hard enough to do that for someone you loved. So take your two favorite, most loved people in the world and say, would you even sacrifice one you love for another person you loved? You'd say, I don't know if I could do that. But the one you hate, the one that's an enemy, that's almost unbearable to think about. That's exactly the gospel. That's when you were lying, cheating, committing adultery, fornicating, uh, gossiping, slandering, ignoring people who are in need. Jesus says, I love you anyway. I'm going to go to the cross for you. And it's God's will. And when he died, he said, it's finished. It's finished. Your sin's covered. Satan's been defeated. You get to have eternal life. And there's no judgment on your life. But there's one thing he requires from us in order to receive that. It doesn't just, we don't receive it by osmosis. <laughs> He says this to you. If you want to receive that forgiveness and you want that relationship, you have to do a couple things. One, you need to confess your sin. You need to see it the one-on-one time with me and you have to tell me everything you know that you did to put me on the cross. Please don't ever do this with someone in evangelism. Don't ever say, say the sinner's prayer with me. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's not biblical. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. What Jesus says, if you're, he says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. 
Confession means you own up to the things that you know you've done. I know one guy, like that my friend Dan Jansen led to Christ, he was with him in his office for an hour. An hour, this guy just came clean before God with Dan sitting in his room. And Dan said, I couldn't believe the things I was hearing and how long it took. He never witnessed anything like it. Some people can confess in three minutes, but if it takes an hour, take an hour. After you confess your sin, God says, now that I've taken care of it, I want you to live in relationship with me that reflects that you love me. So I'm looking for two things in your life. I want to see repentance, meaning I want to see a marked change in your behavior, which shows that you identify with me and that you love me. And the only way for you to know how to live is to read this thing. Because everything I want you to do in this world is written in here. And, then, and, and in, in conjunction with repentance, I want you to obey me. I'm not obeying because I'm not some hard-ass hard judge. I want you to obey me because I loved you so much, I'd die for you in this way. So my, 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 my asking of you for obedience is because of my love for you, not because I, I want to be a dictator in your life. So we confess our sin, we show marked repentance in our life, we turn from the things that we're known for, and we live out our lives in service to God as a surrendered being. And that is the gospel message. The foundation by which we build Genesis House.